welcome to episode 239 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I have today with me a very special guest. Uh, I'll introduce him here in a moment. But before we get started, I just want to remind our listeners that we are sponsored on this episode by Logos Bible Software. Logos is one of the most powerful Bible study tools available. Uh, you can get all sorts of different packages. Uh, several of the books that are uh, written by our, our guests today are available, uh, and we'll talk about those books here in a little bit. And you can get a 10% discount on any package if you go to logos.com slash reformed brotherhood. All right. As I mentioned, I'm very excited. I've mentioned that we're going to be having Dr. Adonis Vidu on our show for a couple weeks now, and we're very excited to bring him on to talk about his new book, which is called The Same God Who Works All Things. Um, so Dr. Vidu graduated from the University of Nottingham with a PhD, and he joined the faculty of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in 2008. And I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but Dr. Vidu was one of my theology professors when I was in seminary. And so uh, hopefully you'll hear a lot of similar uh, lines of thinking as we talk today that you've heard from me in the past. Uh, there are, are really two or three seminary professors that had a pretty profound impact on my uh, theological direction and program, and Dr. Vidu is one of them. So I'm super excited to welcome him onto the show. Dr. Vidu, thank you so much for joining us. So great to be with you, Tony. It's good to see you and to talk to you again. Yes, you have been one of my uh, best seminary students, and and you never gave me much speak much peace in my seminary, <laughs> in my in my lectures. So, uh, I, but it's always been a kind of good fit, feedback, good pushback, and really uh, just wonderful brotherhood in Christ. Thank you. Yeah, one of the things that I think people don't realize about seminary education because of the the sometimes relatively near ages of the professors and the students is that. Other than like a, a traditional undergrad setting, um, seminary students often develop a real good friendship with their professors as well. And even though while you're in class, there's that division, it's cool to see how those relationships carry on and change a little bit afterwards. So I've been thankful. You know, it's always exciting when the, the ETS conference is at Gordon-Conwell. We get to see each other and, and uh, commiserate on what's going on in modern theology. So I'm excited to talk about this book. Um, but, but as we were talking about a little bit before the show, I think it's important to sort of understand before we talk about the theology of a person or the theology of a book to understand kind of the background of a person. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your your background? People probably can hear a little bit of an accent. So tell us where you come from and how you how you came into this crazy world of theology. Yeah, thanks, Tony. Uh, I think you're right. It's, it's helpful sometimes to know the story behind behind the um, behind the book or behind a uh um, just a set of credentials and, and um, yeah, you're right. The accent is Romanian, actually. Um, I, I have fun with people sometimes asking me, hey, I, I hear an accent. They, they some, somehow today they don't ask that question uh, yeah. anymore for some reason. They, they think somehow it's inappropriate. I think it's uh, totally wrong. It's not inappropriate. I'm happy to, to, to share about where my accent is coming from. Uh, yeah, so I, I grew up in Romania. I was born in a Christian family. My dad was a pastor, Baptist pastor in uh, in the, in the town of Oradea, which is on the Hungarian border. Um, and um, basically, um, I went to Bible school um, in um, my hometown. Uh, I thought I was going to be a pastor. Uh, but um, I realized fairly early on in Bible school um, that I wasn't really cut out to be a pastor, at least in, in, in the sense that I didn't 
I didn't feel a calling to be a pastor. I didn't feel like I had the, the necessary giftings uh, to be a pastor. So I, uh, I transitioned to second best, which is theology. <laughs> uh, and I discovered statistics, hermeneutics, philosophy of religion early on in my, in my bachelor's education, did a master's in philosophy, and then a PhD in theology. Uh, but I'm, I really see myself um, um, as, as a churchman, uh, even though I'm not ordained. Um, I really do want to do the kind of theology that, that serves the church, because I think that's the primary public and audience of theology. Um, even though it does have an academic audience as well. Uh, I was 14 when communism collapsed. Uh, so I was kind of roaming the streets during the Romanian revolution. Uh, in our hometown, it was pretty peaceful. Uh, there was no shooting, no fighting, uh, but that, it was happening all across the country. Um, and kind of those first 14 years um, growing up in a, in a communist system, um, uh, they left some kind of mark on me, I guess. Um, it was not a it was not a good thing to be a, a Christian uh, back in those years. Uh, you, certain professions were simply forbidden. Uh, you could not become a lawyer. You could not be in armed forces and so on and so forth. Uh, so there was a lot of persecution in that, in that sense. So I guess to me that kind of um, left this mark of, of, you know, hey, if, if you do theology, try to do it with conviction. In other words, um, there's certainly things that you can be convicted about and, and, you know, gray areas and things that you have to, you know, you have to sort of hold your pause before you say anything. Uh, but there are plenty of other things where you need to be convicted and people have died for these things across the ages. And, you know, coming here in the West, you know, the way in which theology is often done here is in a much more leisurely kind of way. Um, tongue in cheek sometimes, uh, and it's not really treated with the kind of seriousness that I think it, that I think it warrants and that I think it should be honored with, especially in light of the history of martyrs uh, for the faith. So that's kind of what's behind a lot of what I do in theology and how I think theologically these days. So that's just very abbreviated. Uh, I'm married uh, to a beautiful uh, wife, Adriana, and we have a daughter, Hannah, uh, who's in high school right now getting ready for college. Um, and yeah, I've been here since uh, 2008, teaching systematic theology and a bunch of other things. Yeah, and just so the just so our listeners might have a little bit of a glimpse from my own observation, I remember, uh, I think it was probably three or four years ago, maybe I won't mention the the author of the paper, but I remember sitting in a, in a paper with you at Gordon Conwell at the ETS conference, and the paper was, and we'll get into some of these topics later, I think if we have time, but the paper was more or less a response to some of the arguments that uh, Wayne Grudem was making. And the paper was seeking to undercut Wayne Grudem's position by denying the uh, by denying eternal generation. And I remember stepping out of that um, out of that session and this made a really a really big mark on me because I, I just remember thinking this seemed out of character for for Dr. Vidu, but it, it wasn't. And you looked at me and said he doesn't understand what he's doing. And there was this conviction in your voice of like this is a important doctrine that is foundational to what it means to understand Jesus Christ and how he's related to the Father. And I remember thinking, yeah, this is a really big deal. So this wasn't the first time that I got passionate about uh, kind of fighting against EFS. 
or just theology in general. But I remember that. And that I think that's kind of what you're talking about is that there are things to stand on and there are things to not stand on. And I, I've appreciated that when you do theology, whether it's in the classroom or whether it's conference presentations or books or whatever it might be, that you are identifying the things that are important to stand on and not getting so caught up in the um, minutia of this figure, that figure. You know, one of the things people who are reading this book from a reform background might bristle at a little bit is, you know, you make reference to Karl Barth, you make reference to N.T. Wright, and, and, you know, there's all sorts of different figures that the reformed community looks at and goes, well, these aren't really reliable speakers. But, you know, whether you think they're reliable or not is kind of beside the point, but you're willing to make use of the broader tradition, which is something that I think evangelicalism and reformed theology in, in general right now in our day and age doesn't do very well. And the, the, the topic of your book is the inseparable operations of the Trinity, which feels like an, a sort of an esoteric, obscure topic. But when you really get into it, it's not. And one of the things that I think has been a problem to the detriment of sort of contemporary evangelical theology and modern reform theology is that we haven't made use of the broad tradition in in historical theology or even in our immediate history. You know, I've got a lot of things that I would disagree with Karl Barth on, uh, but there are a lot of really insightful things that he also has to say, and, and he has shaped theology in a way that's really profound. So why don't we talk a little bit about um, this book particular and why it is that you felt now is the time to bring about a full-length, book-length treatment of this, this doctrine? Yeah, um, so I first came upon this topic in, um, as I was writing my previous book on the uh, theology of the, of the atonement. Uh, and in that book, I tried to, I was asking this question, how, how do atonement theories um, influence and are influenced by um, contemporary uh, theories about law and justice? Uh, and I had this um, kind of this um, hypothesis that I wanted to test, that there's a, that there's a back and forth between the two the two um, disciplines, basically. Uh, but I had a hard time wrapping up the book. Uh, I wasn't sure exactly how to, how to sort of finalize it because it was uh, kind of very, very descriptive. Uh, and, and, then I, you know, and then I came upon this idea that maybe what I should do is to, is to, is to do a kind of reflection on divine agency. And it, um, at the time that I did that, the focus was divine simplicity. I, 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 it was really funny how, how Fred Sanders at one point in talking about the book said that I hide, I think he said something like this, he hides an argument about the divine simplicity at the end of the book uh, or in a book on the atonement. And, and, and that was actually very perceptive uh, because it was kind of concealed there. It was kind of, you know, sort of landed like out of the blue in a sense, but not, not entirely out of the blue because I'm asking this question, how, you know, how do we interpret any divine action and atonement is a divine action. So if we want to make sense of it properly, we have to figure out the kind of agent that God is. And, and we have to be aware of and, and careful about mythologizing God, that is right. turning God into, into another creature. Um, and that got me to divine simplicity. And, and inseparable operations really weren't that far afield. It was right there. And, and as I thought about divine simplicity, I came across the topic of inseparable operations. Um, and I realized, wow, this is a, this is really significant. Um, and I started looking, okay, who else has written on this stuff? And to my delight, actually, I realized <laughs> that, that no one had done a, a full, you know, um, a volume length treatment. 
of the doctrine. And I, and I said, hey, this is a great area to make a contribution to theology. So, so that's how I came upon it. Um, it you're right. It, it sounds like it's um, uh, esoteric, uh, but actually it's one of the most ancient and, and in, interestingly, one of the most universally embraced doctrines, East as well as West, in Trinitarian theology. Yeah. Yeah, I really find that to be the case. And I think you're right that this is one of those doctrines that is, um, you know, one of my other professors, uh, Donald Fairbairn, he talks about how in the early church, there are certain things that are just in the air that, that are they're unsaid by the writers because they're just assumed by everybody. Um, you know, the, the inspiration and authority of scripture is the one he usually highlights. But this doctrine of divine simplicity and then inseparable operations, which is really just an is just an application of divine simplicity to the way that God acts. Um, that's another one of those assumptions. So both Arius and, and Athanasius assume divine simplicity. They assume uh, inseparable operations. And for Arius, that's why the son has to be a creature. Why he can't be God, capital G, the one God, because if he was the one God, then we have this separation of operations in, in the economy. Athanasius mm -hmm. goes, well, no, no, the, the inseparability of operations is what actually proves that the son is God. Mm -hmm. So, so this is one of those things that I think if you aren't carefully reading historically, um, you miss it because they don't talk about it. They don't, you know, they don't explain in a lot of senses exactly what this theology is because everybody sort of already has this as a shared language. And I know, mm. you know, I was in your class, um, Atonement, Law and Justice. I don't know if that was the, the title of the course, but it was a course that came out of your research uh, mm -hmm. for for that book. Um, mm -hmm. Which, by the way, is a phenomenal book. It was um, it was really helpful. We did our listeners remember we did a whole series on atonement theology, and it was a joy for me to go back through that book as I was preparing for that because it really does highlight all the different atonement models, how they interplay and interact with the theology that was going on in the day, the understanding of justice in the day. So I, everyone should pick up that book as much as they pick up this book. Um, but it was one of those things where this doctrine of inseparable operations or divine simplicity, it was like it, I had heard it because I had already been through my systematic courses, but I hadn't seen how it actually played out into the reality of something like the atonement that is, is much more concrete and something most Christians mm -hmm. are more familiar with. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I struggled with in that course is it seemed and sort of felt like a really philosophical uh, abstract doctrine. Um, and one of the things that I enjoyed as I, you know, I'm not as far into this new book as I'd like to be, but one of the things that I enjoyed was, was understanding and getting at the real biblical foundations of this doctrine, because both simplicity and inseparability, they oftentimes do get accused of being sort of like beholden to, you know, Greek philosophical categories, this and that, and the other thing. So can we, can we take a few minutes to sort of talk through some of the major proof texts, or maybe just pick one of the larger proof areas that you use in the book and kind of walk through that text to, to show how that doctrine is grounded in the scriptures? Yeah, so what, I think what we can do is to kind of show the kind of the biblical logic behind inseparable operations and, and uh, highlight several texts here. Um, I think what is, um, I, I think it's true that inseparable operations is regarded um, as a metaphysical deduction from divine simplicity and from the unity of God. Actually, the way this worked out historically is quite the opposite. Uh, it, it's a biblically derived doctrine, and I tried to do that in my, in my first chapter, uh, which takes about 50 pages to, to look through and, and to, to work through the biblical material. 
Um, and I think this is extremely important, especially for evangelical, uh, for our evangelical constituency, which where we make such a big deal of, of the foundational role of scripture and theology. Um, so what I realized is that inseparable, the doctrine of inseparable operations or the idea that the son acts inseparably with the father is precisely what got us to the doctrine of the Trinity. Right. It's not a deduction from the doctrine. It's what gets us to the doctrine because it's precisely because to Christ are ascribed exactly the kinds of things that God does, that he is confessed to be divine. And not only is, are, are these kinds of activities ascribed to God, but the unique activity of creation, the one which is not a type of activity, but it is a unique, I'm calling it an act token as opposed to right. an act type. Um, it's an absolutely unique and concrete act, which is precisely th the action that's ascribed to Christ. So what the New Testament does is basically it, among other things, obviously, because there's Christological titles and there's all, all kinds of other uh, ways of getting at the divinity of Jesus. But one of the ways in which, and I think the, one of the more found, uh, weighty ways in which the New Testament is getting at the divinity of Jesus is to ascribe to Christ precisely the activities of the Father and especially the activity of creation. So I looked at the way in which, in which two kinds of activities or two, uh, two types of ascriptions are made to Christ in, in, in scripture and in, in the New Testament, obviously. First of all, covenantal kinds of activities where, Christ is ident where to Christ are ascribed the kinds of things that God does as the covenant Lord of Israel. So, for example, if Christ is defined as the rock from which Israel drank in the wilderness, um, Christ is uh, uh, defined, this is 1 Corinthians 10, for example. Also in 1 Corinthians 10, we are told not to put Christ to the test, as Israel did with God, right? So this whole idea of the jealousy of God is directly ascribed to Jesus Christ. Obviously, you know, we're aware of the forgiveness of sins. It's an act that only God does, can, can, only God can do. Uh, the Lordship over the Sabbath, right, which is going to come up again in, in, in another series of texts. The sending of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was considered to be just the manifestation of God or the power of God at work in the world. And here we have Christ somehow having the prerogative of sending the Holy Spirit. Now, this is what I'm calling a series of covenantal activities. Um, but it is conceivable, and certain authors have I've tried to make the point that it is conceivable that all these activities can still be carried out by a mediator, by an in-between, by a kind of demiurge, right? So these kinds of texts don't really get us sufficiently to where we want to get it. They don't sufficiently uh, justify a, a high, a divine Christology. But the next set of predications, the predicating or the ascription of the very act of creation to Christ himself, that is what's sort of, you know, tipping it. So right. John 1, right, Hebrews 2.10, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, Colossians 1, all of these are basically arguing that, that Christ is the one through whom God created, and nothing which was created was created without Christ. Right. So in other words, it, it doesn't leave any wiggle, wiggle room. So, and the, the way in which, you know, a number of New Testament writers put it, like Richard Balkum, for example, Larry Hurtado, is that Christ is simply placed on the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. 
and there's only one being populating the other side of that border. Right. And that is, and that is the one creator God who posits all reality. So, I mean, there, there's a little, there's a little, a little bit of an assumption, like a metaphysical assumption that is sort of breathing through these texts. And that is the assumption of an exclusive monotheism. Right. Uh, but once you, once you accept that assumption that, that the, the Old Testament is making to predicate creation to God, to Christ makes a very clear point about, you know, about Jesus be basically being included in, in the identity of, of Yahweh, as Balkan puts it. Um, so, so these are the, the kinds of texts that sort of directly speak to the, and establish the divinity of Jesus. And then you have another type of texts which speak directly to the inseparable operations, to the way in which Jesus and the Father act as one. And these are primarily in John, right? So John developed, really develops this theology of, of inseparable operations. And I want to point out a couple of, a couple of uh, texts. First of all, John 5. Jesus heals um, on the day of Sabbath, and of course, triggers this reaction. And Jesus' first response is in John 5, 17. Um, hey, guys, in case you didn't notice, God is also working on the Sabbath. And he says, my father is working until now, and I am working. In other words, it's okay for God to work on the Sabbath. It's a pretty astounding claim, right? And then he goes on to say that the son, this is verse 19, the son only does what he sees the father doing. Right. So the son basically receives everything that he has and everything that he is from the father. It's, it's, really, it's really interesting. Um, and, and let me just mention uh, 526, where Jesus says, as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to also have life in himself. And I think this, this kind of text is, is really undercutting the claim that Jesus is just a kind of a go-between God. Right or a demiurge, because, because like an agent figure, a mediator figure does not have life in himself, but he has life simply by delegation, yeah. by authority, by empowerment, and so on. Um, but two claims can be seen in this, in this text. On the one hand, that he has life in himself, but at the same time, he has life in himself from the Father. So it's not just, it's not just that him having life in himself, uh, as if he were kind of an independent de deity alongside the Father, maybe in a dualism right. of, of sorts or a tritheism of sorts, if you include the Holy Spirit. And so there's no contradiction be between him being having this life in himself and having it from the Father, which means really that he and the Father are the same thing, right. the same being, basically. Yeah. Then obviously you have John 14. This is the last one I'm going to mention. This is the famous uh, Philip episode, right, where Philip... You know, says, hey, it's great, Lord, that you're doing all these things. Can we, can we now see the Father? And this question would be entirely justified in that kind of mediator framework. Hey, yeah, great, you're doing all these things, you're empowered, but can, you, can we now see the one who's really behind you? Right? And Jesus, you know, frustrated, have you not been with me? Have you seen me? You've seen the Father. And then he says, the Father who dwells in me is doing his work, is, does, does these works. The Father who, who dwells in me does these works. So in other words, the, the works that Christ is doing are precisely the works of the Father. So that's, that's sufficient, I think, to, you know, to get our foot in the door and say, okay, there's something more here than just either a mediator or just another being alongside of the being of the right. Father. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I, um, that, that John 526 text has always sort of pun, I've always puzzled at that a little bit. And, you know, there's, there's like the, the discussion in Trinitarian theology between, you know, communication of essence versus communication of person. And, you know, there's, there's kind of the classic view that the son's eternal generation is sort of the eternal act of God, God, the father communicating to the son, the the divine essence. And then there's Calvin's view where that that's not exactly what's going on. But in both of those views, uh, which are, are both, they're both orthodox views. I, I take Calvin's position, but lots of really smart, great theologians have taken um, the, the position that's probably more historically prominent. Um, but in both of those views, what you have is divine, divine aseity, which is a, a possession of the sun and it's eternally a possession of the sun. And so you, you, you're right. You have these two, these two concepts that fuse together or, or harmonize together, give you the doctrine of the Trinity, right? Because if you have the, the, you have life in himselfness, if you want to kind of put it into this noun form, whatever we're talking about, that's a, a eternal possession of the father. And I, I suppose you could in a, a truly tritheistic you know, plural uh, deity model, you could have another entity that has life in himselfness. But since that life in himselfness comes from the father and goes to the son, it's the very same life in himselfness. It's the very same aseity. And so whether you, whether you believe that that is communicated to the son as, as far as the son gains his essence from the father or the son gains his identity as a person, however you want to parse that out, both of those views leave you with this doctrine of simplicity. And so now I think what we want to do then is we want to flip that over and get two inseparable options. And that's where I think your your book is so insightful about the nature of creation as a as a utterly unique act. And so just on um, on page 50 here, you say, to Christ is ascribed the primeval act of creation itself. And then you kind of define that by saying, which is the very establishment of a reality outside of God's self. And so what you have, and this is this is why I think it's so important to ground these in creation texts, right? Genesis 1, John 1, uh, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, right? That's my, that's my mnemonic device that I give people when they're saying, what verses do I bring up when I'm talking to Jehovah's Witnesses or, or sort of there's sort of neo-Aryan movements um, around that are, are postulating Christ as a creature. Well, those are the four texts. And in all of those texts, you either have you know, Christ on the same side of the creature creator divide, or you have Christ on the opposite side of the creature creator divide. But in all four of those texts, and then obviously Genesis one has to be interpreted in light of the new Testament text cited, you have Christ, you have the son on the creator side. And so mm -hmm. unless you have two creators, which isn't possible because yeah. if you have two creators, then one of them is already outside of the other's self. So those two have to be unified in being. So I think that was, that was for me, I, I don't underline in books very often because I'm kind of, a, mm. I'm a little OCD. That was mm -hmm. a big underline under there because I think mm. that's a, a definition of creation that most people wouldn't get to without some really deep thought. But once it comes mm -hmm. out and you see that creation is by very definition, an act that only God can do. Because it is postulating and, and forming this reality outside of God's self, 
there's only one option at that point. Mm. So I love how you yeah. brought that out. And so one of the things that I think as I've talked about inseparability, you know, since I took your class and then also as it's this sort of Trinitarian uh, retrieval and all of the work being done in, in theology popper by people like James Dolezal, Scott Swain. Um, one of the things that comes up is sometimes people do have this idea that like, well, yeah, the, the divine persons work together, but they're doing different things together. And so the three persons, you know, they each do their own thing. And those three things that they're doing come together to sort of form one divine act. And in your book, you you talk about this as the difference between soft inseparability and hard inseparability. And I think that's a distinction that's really important for people to make. So can you maybe give a quick definition of those two different versions of inseparability and then talk a little bit about why it's important to hold this hard inseparability that you argue for in the book? Sure. Um, that's what I kind of noted when I saw people talking about inseparable operations, whether casually uh, or even some, some theologians and colleagues writing today. Yeah. Um, I, I sensed that, that the way they viewed inseparable operations was not the historic approach to, to this doctrine. And they saw it more in terms of a coordination of the person's cooperation, collective, age, uh, collective action, you know, kind of like players on the team. They each do their individual thing. One's doing the defense, another right. one's doing the offense, and so on. Another one's a tackle. You know, if I if I use football analogies, American football analogies, um, but still they're, they're they're doing this common thing together. You know, and and the argument there that well, you know, if 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 that's how inseparable operations works, then there's nothing to prevent us to to speak about different beings. You know, because being follows action. You know, and and and. You know, looking back in the history of Trinitarian theology, the way and the reason why we have a Trinitarian theology is not because Christ does the same kinds of things as the Father, you know, or because he simply cooperates with the Father, but because it is the Father in me doing these things, right? And, and not just me doing the same kinds of things as, as the Father, like you said about creation, right? Um, so, um, so that's what I would define as soft inseparability, um, the the, um, the the three persons um, are the, the three persons each possess their distinct actions, and these actions have a let's call it a posterior unity. They uh, this is not the kind of language I use in the book specifically, but we could we could use it now. Uh, in, in other words, uh, their actions come together, eventually cohere into this greater whole, right? Um, so you might say that their actions, their distinct actions are parts of the greater whole of, you know, the greater inseparable whole. So that's what I'm calling loose inseparability or soft inseparability. But the, the kind of the historic position of the church has kind of always and clearly been hard inseparability, which is to say that the persons do not possess their distinct actions, but whenever God acts in the world, and this has to do specifically with economic actions. It has to do specifically with actions in the world, not actions within the imminent trinity. That's a whole other discussion. That's the flip side of the coin, right? But when God acts in the world, he acts as a single agent, right? And that's what I'm calling hard inseparability. Now, um, 
this is the reason why we have all these objections and questions that are generated throughout history. Hey, how is this consistent with the incarnation? How is this consistent with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, with the Pentecost and Ascension and all of that? And try to answer that. I'm sure we'll come back to those things eventually. Uh, but Hardin separately says something like this. If one of the persons is set to do an action, it follows that the other two persons are also equally um, doing that same action, right? Um, I think it's important um, that we define this correctly. What does it mean to do an action? What does it mean to act? And I get a little bit into this because, you know, unfortunately it has to become a technical discussion at some point. Yeah. Otherwise you can't, so you, you can't solve, solve the, the objections. And I really define an action as the production of an effect, the product, specifically the production of a created effect, because we're talking about economic actions. Right. You know, so, and that'll, that's going to come to play a part when I, when I solve some issues in Christology. I'll stop here. Yeah. Because uh, maybe I'm, I'm getting carried away. No, no, I, I think that's good. And, and, you know, people, people listening to this, our, our audience is, is, as you might surmise from the name, is primarily sort of reformed, uh, hopefully growing to be more and more confessionally reformed um, thinkers and and people will be hearing kind of echoes of um, the idea of first and secondary causes. Right. And so one of the things that I think is important is God doesn't cause effects in the world the way that a secondary agent does. Right. So God, God acts to create effects in the world, but is not acted upon in, in reverse by the world. Mm -hmm. And a secondary effect both creates an effect, a create might not be the right word, but causes an effect in the world, but at the same time has an effect caused on them. And so there's this natural unfolding of causation. And that actually, yeah. I think, is really key to this, is that if... Oh, go mm -hmm. ahead. No, it's very key. And it, 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 I wish I had thought about it in the book, actually, when it comes to the atonement. You know? Right. Because if, if, um, if the father causes an effect and the sun causes an effect, the same effect in a different way, then the sun actually becomes a part of that secondary causation chain, right? So sometimes, um, you know, you read the language in John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, that the word uh, was, things were created through the word. And, and people look at that and they think, oh, so yeah, the father does something. The son is kind of like his instrumental means of doing that thing. And then the spirit kind of is the, the efficient power behind that. And there's some, there's some reasons to talk that way, right? That mm -hmm. that's a, a kind mm -hmm. of a historical, the father is the fountain, the son is the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the arranger or whatever. Um, but when we, when we think that way, if we're not careful and we don't realize that when we talk about that, when the scripture talks about that, it's doing so in these analogical, anthropomorphized mm -hmm. ways so that mm -hmm. we can understand the, the un understandable. We mm -hmm. now take the sun and the spirit and we make them um, we make them causes in this secondary chain of causation rather mm -hmm. than being along with the father in the same mm -hmm. exact sense and way that the father is actually the first cause, which is not mm -hmm. acted upon by the subsequent causes. And mm -hmm. that, I think that is so important because we'll, we'll come back to uh, questions about the incarnation. Cause I think that's really key for us to land, but that is so important when we're talking about things like the eternal functional subordination of the son or the eternal relations of authority and submission, which listeners of my show know all about that. But Bruce Ware, who's kind of the, the main, really theological um, proponent of this. Wayne Grudem is not really uh, in his most, most of his academic work isn't as a systematician per se. He really teaches New Testament a lot more. Um, so I've remarked before, I don't actually 
understand exactly how he got into the business of writing a systematic theology in the first place. But uh, Bruce Ware actually says that the father could have acted unilaterally apart from the son and spirit, but chooses to use, chooses to work through the son and the spirit. And then later in a, a section later on in that same, I think it's in the same chapter, he actually talks about creatures and talks about how well the father, the father doesn't need to use creatures. And so he kind of subtly, and I think totally unaware, I, I don't think that he made this connection, obviously, or, or we'd have a bigger problem than we already do. He puts the son and the spirit in the same position of this secondary agents rather than retaining them above the creature creator divide yes. right so he he subtly mm -hmm. makes them into creatures in terms of how their causation works and mm -hmm. only leaves the father above that line mm. and so this doctrine of inseparability if we have that kind of um component part doctrine of inseparability which isn't a doctrine of inseparability at all i don't think you make that point but I, i'll say that a little maybe a little more forcefully than you do this soft inseparability is not actually inseparability because you can separate it right yeah if we yeah, think yeah. about um you i think you use this yeah, analogy that's why I use the word posterior right exactly yeah. i think you used this analogy at the the little regional ets conference that we did mm -hmm. but if you think of a house right composed of mm -hmm. bricks each mm -hmm. of those bricks contributes to that house a portion mm -hmm. of that house's overall houseness right mm -hmm. and so each brick is contributing in its own operation mm -hmm. to compose or to be composed into this house which is now the operation of a house mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well if you take one of those bricks out and replace it with a different brick now you still you still have a house it's a slightly different house but you still have this houseness so yeah. these bricks are contributing what you're calling this posterior uh, unity in that, yes, mm -hmm. they all function together as a whole. And even though you can replace them, if you replace a particular brick, you don't have the exact same operation. You have the same mm -hmm. kind of operation. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what we're doing if we hold this sort of loose uh, or soft inseparability is just like Bruce Ware is doing. You could take the sun in his theory. You could take the sun and the spirit out of the act of creation. And mm -hmm. yes, it would probably be a different act of creation mm -hmm. or a different operation of creation. But you would still be able to, you'd still happen. And what mm -hmm. hard inseparability says, no, only God can create. And, all, you know, James Dolezal's book, All That Is in God, it's, it goes back to this really, really venerable traditional saying in theology that all that is in God is God and nothing that is in God is not God. Mm -hmm. And so you can't swap parts out or mm -hmm. pull a piece out and still have mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. And that is the doctrine of simplicity. Mm -hmm. And now the doctrine of inseparability, which is this next step that I think a lot of people haven't been ready to make, but I'm hoping are ready to make now is you can't have a doctrine of simplicity and then still hold to this doctrine of loose inseparability because this simple single, simple essence and the three persons of whom are the, the essence subsists or in whom the essence subsists, they can't act in a way that is separable or is mm. divided or, or mm -hmm. uh, replaceable. Right. So, yeah, so I, I, I wanted just to get that out there because I think hopefully there's a bunch of like light bulbs going off in our audience's head right now to see, Oh man, all this stuff that we've been looking at for the last 230, 38 episodes of EFS and theology proper and divine simplicity and, how predestination works, all of these things we talked about in Reformed theology, they rest upon this doctrine of inseparable operations mm. in order for them to make sense. <clears throat> if, you know, the, the classic Reformed organization that the father elects, the son uh, obtains the, you know, redeems the elect, and then the spirit applies that redemption to the elect, 
that's a that's a valuable heuristic way for us to mm-hmm. think and talk about it. And the Bible yeah. uses that language, so we're on good mm-hmm. grounds to use it. Mm-hmm. But if we get that wrong, <clears throat> then all of yeah. the character, you know, all of the caricatures of divine child abuse, of you know, uh, of the the Pentecostal accusation, like, well, you have no place for the Spirit in your theology. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, those character, you know, caricatures become accurate of mm-hmm. our theology mm-hmm. if we lose mm-hmm. this doctrine of separability. So I'm wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about um, the doctrine of appropriations. And how that doctrine of appropriation specifically relates to the incarnation. Because I think when I talk about this with people, their first response is almost always to be like, well, doesn't this mean that the father died on the cross? And I'm like, no, no, there's, you know, according to this, according to that nature. But the incarnation itself is a really, really sort of tough nut to crack with this theology, because it's hard to understand how the operation of becoming incarnate, if we want to talk about it that way, even though I don't think that's the right way to talk about it, but Mm -hmm. the operation of incarnation, how that can be a singular unified act of all three persons of the Trinity. So can you talk a little bit about the the doctrine of appropriations or or the termination of operation and then the incarnation itself? Yeah. So those are some great questions. Um, And, um, and I think, I mean, the first thing I'd want to say is that, um, we have to be really careful when we when we define um, the unity of God, so we don't think about it as simply the monadic, non-differentiated kind of unity. Uh, that's going to slip us straight into modalism. Um, of course, you have the 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 opposite danger attending the other um, models of the Trinity, um, the tritheistic types of dangers. Uh, so, th- so what I would want to say is that. <clears throat> Is that yeah, God is a unity, but this unity is a differentiated kind of unity, which does not break the unity, where the distinctions do not break the unity and do not partition the essence. So you bring up this notion of, of appropriation. And I'm just gonna define, I'm just gonna, you know, take a stab at it real quick and then I get into the Christology question. Um, because if if God acts as one, um, but if this unity is a um, still a differentiated unity. It's, it's as Van Hooser calls it simplexity. He doesn't call it simplicity, sim- simplexity in typical Van Hooser, yeah. you know, innovative style. Um, and um, and um, if, if this unity is differentiated, then within the unity of the same action, you can still catch gl- glimpses of the personal distinctions, of the real distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the doctrine of appropriation is trying is trying to say that even though they always act as one, you can still glimpse here and there the personal property, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, what I think, and I wish I had argued this at more length in the book. I, I don't give, um, I actually don't give as much attention as I now would have wanted to the doctrine of appropriation because it's it because I was getting I was getting over the word limit already. So. But I, I said at one point in the book that we mustn't think of appropriation as individuation. Appropriation is not another way of talking about roles, right? In, in other words, because I, I see some, some, some theologians saying like this, um, you know, this, this or that action, yes, it is a, an inseparable operation, but this one is appropriated to the Son, and this other one is appropriated to the Holy Spirit. And if you talk in those terms, you're basically, again, switching back into that mode of thinking about roles. Right. So uh, what then is appropriation? I think appropriation is more of a, uh, it's, it's more of a, 
a deeper discernment, a deeper sensing, a deeper, I would even call it tasting of the person, of, of one particular person um, within a unified inseparable operation. Um, but we don't distinguish the persons by their appropriated actions. The distinctions must already be in place for us to understand the appropriations. So the analogy, think about the wine tasting as an analogy. You know, a wine taster is gonna say, hey, I sense a taste of, uh, I don't know, peach, or plum or whatever, right? In, 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 that, in that unified taste of the, of, the, of the wine. But the thing is that the taster must already know what the plum tastes like, what a peach tastes like. And only once we have established the personal distinctions and the personal properties, then we can sort of sense and intuit the personal properties in, in, the, in the operations. So the point which I, you know, maybe only um, tentatively established in the book is that in, appro in appropriation, by appropriation, we take an inseparable unified operation in the direction of a particular person and try to tease out from that unified operation and to, and to sort of sense in that unified operation, the personal presence of that specific person. And the example that I give is with the Barman Declaration. You know, it's commonly produced by a number of German, Swiss, whatever theologians, but, it, but you can still, you can really sense Bart, right. uh, you know, as being one of the main authors, but you have to have a sense of who, who Bart is before the Barman Declaration. Yeah. Right. So, um, so that's kind of on the, on appropriation. Do you want to pick it up from here a little bit? Cause this might, might have triggered some other questions in you. And then we come back, we circle back to, to Christology. No, but, but let me, uh, let me maybe give a little bit of a, an analogy and everyone knows mm -hmm. I don't love analogies for Trinitarian stuff, but, but if you think about like a, a triangle, right. And let's say each side of the triangle has its own unique color, right? Well, when you look at one side of the triangle, you're still looking at the triangle, but you're only mm -hmm. seeing that color of the triangle, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the triangle, we could say in a certain sense is inseparable because if you take one of those lines away, you no longer have a triangle, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. it, it's not true that a triangle is a simple simple entity, but, but in a sense it is. So that's kind of like what's going on with the doctrine of appropriation here, right? When we look at the act of creation or, or election, what we're looking at is the father colored side of this triangle, right? When we look at the, doc, the, the, the act of redemption, we're looking at the sun colored side of this triangle. But that's not to say that the other two sides of the triangle are not, are not still operating in order to, to bring about the triangle. And they're not even mm -hmm. operating in a unique way. Mm -hmm. There's still, you know, one of the things that I think, because eternal generation, eternal um, spiration was really, really involved in this doctrine. I don't think we'll have time to get to that. But one of the things that happens with generation and spiration is people start to think like, well, because because the son is eternally generated, then he's God in a different way than the father is. And that, that isn't really accurate to say of the doctrine of eternal generation, because we're not talking about uh, we're not talking about roles. Right. That's where the EFS mm -hmm. people go wrong. We're not yeah. talking about um, we're talking about causes in a certain sense, but not not temporal or or sequential causes. We're talking Correct. about eternal causes, yeah. which is a, a category that doesn't even make sense. But we haven't got anything better than that. Yeah. So what we have is you have the father and the son. And the only way we know that the son and the father are distinct from each other is because the son is the son of the father and the father is the father of the son. Mm -hmm. If you just look at the son, which isn't possible to do, but if you were to just look at the son, there's nothing differentiating him in mm -hmm. essence from the father. Mm -hmm. 
So if you take this understanding of a triangle, and I think we'll, we'll talk about your analogy of a magnet when we get to Christology, because I think that's really, really good. But if mm-hmm. you talk about this understanding of a triangle, and you understand you're still looking at the triangle, but you're seeing a particular uh facet or aspect of the mm-hmm. triangle you're mm-hmm. seeing the red side of the triangle or or whatever yeah. i think mm-hmm. that's a useful way for obviously it breaks down all mm-hmm. analogies break down but that's a useful way for us to understand this doctrine of appropriations mm-hmm. without then turning this into let me put it this way if appropriations are individuation as you say or if if appropriations are unique roles then instead mm-hmm. of looking at the triangle what you're doing is you're pulling one of those lines out and you're looking at that line and then you might be mm-hmm. putting that line back into the triangle but you're still looking at that line individually and mm-hmm. what we need to do as trinitarian theologians rather than tritheist theologians mm-hmm. who are looking at three different beings with three different mm-hmm. unique operations or modalist theologians looking at one being with potentially various operations, we need to look at the Trinity as a unified whole and and that acts in a unified fashion, a, a really genuinely simple fashion that is obviously beyond beyond our comprehension. So mm-hmm. do, do you think that, that that analogy of this triangle is fair? I, I mean, obviously, like yeah. all sorts mm-hmm. of different analogies break down, but I think that that's a helpful way for us to kind of conceptualize this. Yeah, I mean, I don't see anything that's glaringly wrong in this. I mean, the only thing that I would say is that, yeah, uh, but you say, for example, if you take the action of creation, right, uh, and you say we're looking at, in this action of creation, we're looking at the triangle from the side of the Father. Right. But I would say there's nothing to prevent us in this, when it comes to the same action of creation to look at the same triangle but, but from the action from, from the side of the sun. Right, right. In, in other words, you can take any divine action and appropriate it to any of the divine persons. Right? That's why I don't think it's an individuating principle. Right. Yes, but I think I, I like the analogy, right? It, yeah, we tend to, now this is what we see. Now this is, this is kind of the taste, the lingering taste in my mouth right now. Yeah. You know, the taste of the sun, for example, or the taste of the spirit. But I know there are other tastes as well, but right, right now I'm focusing on this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's actually, you know, when you look at the sort of classic Trinitarian passages throughout the New Testament, I think that that comes out loud and clear, right? If you were to mm-hmm. look at just Genesis 1 with mm-hmm. a Trinitarian understanding, you get this impression that the Father is the Creator and then the Son and the Spirit. If you take the speech of the Father to be the, you know, a a representation or a, a picture of the sun in the act of creation, and you take the spirit hovering over the water, and you you take those first three verses as a triune act. You get this right. understanding that the Father is the Creator, and these other these other mm-hmm. two persons are involved somehow. But then mm-hmm. you get to John one and Colossians one and Hebrews one, and all of a sudden now the sun seems to be the primary agent mm-hmm. of creation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you do have those different flavors. It's funny. The, the first thought I had, mm-hmm. you know, I know that you've got a. Uh, an interview coming up on uh, distilling theology, which is another one of the shows on our network here. Uh, so it's funny because, you know, you're talking about all these different flavors of um, wines and peach and stuff. And, and they're going to, I don't know whether they're going to do this with you or not. They don't do this with everybody, but, but they typically open their show with a scotch tasting or a distilled spirit <laughs> tasting. And they're always like, yeah, I can sense a little bit of campfire smoke here. And I, I was on their show and I'm like, this tastes like scotch to me. I'm not sure. Uh, and it's funny. You can tell you're from Europe and, and our audience is probably primarily from America because I think if this was a an American uh, Native American uh, speaker, probably would have gone with craft beer, right? Because that's kind of the, the predominant thing. All of our listeners are like, "Wine? I haven't had wine in a long. Last time I had wine, I was at a wedding or something like that." So I, that was just a, a funny connection I made in my mind. But I do want to. But 
Go ahead. But, yeah, I mean, I think because I, I think what comes out in that particular analogy is is that you only taste the distinctness within the unity. Right. If you, if you take if you remove the distinctness from the unity, you're not even talking about the same thing. You're not even talking about the person of the son because the son is only the son insofar as he is begotten of the father. Right. And insofar as together with the father inspired the Holy Spirit. Right. And so, it's so yeah. It's not the act of of being created through, if we want to use biblical language, that's not what makes him the son, right? A couple of weeks ago, I talked about how, how um, a couple of EFS people said that the father is the father because he sends the son and they don't realize they're actually making the father's identity dependent on creation now because there's exactly. nowhere to send the son if there's no creation to send him into. That's not what mm -hmm. makes the son the son. What is the reality is that the son is the son because he's the son of the father. And so his, his individual flavor in the ad extra economy is what it is because he's the son. Just like if I, if I detect peach in a wine, it's not, it's not the wine that's making the peach taste like peach. It's the peach that's making the wine taste the way it does. So I think that's a really, really good analogy. And, and I, I, we're, we're coming up on time here and I want to be respectful of your time, but I do want to, I do want to touch on this element of Christology. Cause I think this is the other area where people get tripped up is, other other divine acts or operation operation singular other areas of divine operation we can get our heads around a little bit better but this this incarnation thing seems to be so distinctly and uniquely an, an act of the sun or an operation of the sun that it's hard for us to get our head around so can you maybe <laughs> touch on that sure. your magnet analogy is very very helpful on this yeah sure let's see if we get to that uh, magnet analogy i think there's a couple of distinctions that are really just for me they have been eye-opening and and um I mean, I, I haven't tried to innovate in this book. I've only tried to kind of tease out what the tradition has said, what this great tradition has said, because I think it's just rich enough. We don't need to yeah. innovate further. And one of the distinctions, I mean, first of all, it's, it's how do we define an action? How do we define an operation? Because we're talking about inseparable operations. So I define an operation as the production of an effect, right? Some right. God create, postulates an effect, creates an effect, whatever outside of himself. But there's, here's another distinction that I think is extremely important. That is the distinction between a mission and an operation. A mission is not an operation. And it seems to me like this is a big mistake that EFS theologians are making. You know, they're looking at the operations of Christ, they're looking at the obedience of Christ, and automatically they're, project, they're reading that back into, into his eternal identity, which is completely wrong. Right. Because operations pertain to nature's and, and there are operations that pertain to his divine nature and operations that pertain to his human nature, such as obedience, for example. And you can't project that back into, into, into the Trinity for exactly the same reasons you mentioned earlier. So when we think about that, right, we can say, we can say several, when we think about this, this distinction, we can say several things. In the incarnation, everything that has to do with the production of an effect is the common work of all the persons of the, of the trinity but anything in the incarnation that has to do with something other than just the production of an effect such as the self-communication of a divine person which is the term Rahner uses I, I like that term i think the way he just defines it is somewhat problematic but anything that has to do with the self-communication with a union between a divine person and a, and these created effects those things are not appropriated. Those things are not just inseparable operations. Those things are distinct to the person. So, so the, the way this distinction works is to say that 
that the created effects are commonly produced by the whole trinity. But the mission, right, the mission of a divine person, in this case, the mission of the sun, is distinct to the sun. So in the incarnation, it is the sun distinctly that is united to the human nature. Now notice the language that I used here. I said is united, right? So that's not, it doesn't define an action. It defines a state. Uh, Cyril of Alexandria talked about incarnation as the enclothing of the sun with right. the human nature. So you have this other analogy we can use, you know, you have two people, you know, a gentleman and a butler, you know, the, the butler is dressing the gentleman. Yeah, so they're both doing the dressing. They're both acting, producing this effect of the dressing, but only one of them is being dressed. Another weak analogy, granted, you know, but it can, it can help us to see why, why there isn't necessarily a contradiction here, right? So I would argue that in the incarnation, it's the whole trinity that's producing everything in the incarnation that has to do with the creation of an effect, primarily the human nature of Jesus Christ. And then the whole Trinity is taking this human nature and giving it to the sun and clothing the sun with this human nature. Yeah. So, so the analogy of the magnet, you know, that I used is that the whole magnet, you, have, you take a magnet and a magnet, you know, typically attracts um, uh, a, say, metal object, paperclip or a coin or something like that. It's the whole magnet that's, that's attracting the paperclip but the paperclip is being attached specifically to just one of the poles of the magnet and receive something from that pole. I think it's a really beautiful analogy yeah. that works in so many different ways throughout the book. But yeah. yeah, that's kind of the way in which we answer that question. And it's kind of the typical traditional answer to that. Yeah, and so this is one of those things, you know, a lot, a lot has been made about the difference between Reformed and Lutheran Christology and, and particularly how it interacts with the Lord's Supper. And some of those, mm -hmm. some of those arguments I think are overblown, but this is actually an area I was talking with someone online the other day specifically about this. This is an area where I think the distinction between the Reformed position on the hypostatic union, which is that more or less that the, the union is between two natures that subsist in a single person. And so the attributes of each nature are communicated to the person, but not to the other essence. So the, the human nature doesn't take on divine, divine attributes. The divine nature doesn't take on human attributes. The Lutheran position is kind of roughly defined that there are some divine attributes that are, are communicated to the human nature, most notably the ubiquity or, or a sort of like a minor form of omnipresence in the Lord's Supper. But that's why in this particular thing, it's really important because what, what we're saying about the incarnation here is that the, the you know, we say the, the, um, the son was united to a human nature. It, I think it's actually more appropriate technically to say that the human nature was united to the divine person, right? And it's so a mixed relation. Yeah, the yeah divine exactly. Person so we, we don't have... The, the, the divine person of the son. We don't have the divine person of the son somehow changing and, and becoming a human. What we have is a human nature which has no subsistence or existence in and of itself becoming existent or becoming subsistent in the son. And because right. this is a hypostatic union and not an essential union, the 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 union is located in the hypostasis of the son, in the person of the son. And that is what accounts for the fact that the father did not become incarnate. The spirit did not become incarnate, even though in a sense, a very qualified way of speaking, 
the divine nature becomes incarnate in the son, which is why we can say the entirety or the fullness of deity dwells bodily, because even though the father and the spirit are the divine nature, as is the son, it's the son's hypostasis where the human nature becomes incarnate or where it becomes personalized. Exactly. So the human nature receives the son's mode of existence. Right. Because it's, it's, it's actuated by the union with the son specifically, it becomes the human son of God. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, exactly. And, and for that reason, that human nature is obedient, right? Because it's, it's the proper expression in a human nature of the son's fromness, right? The son's coming, receiving himself, well, coming from the father. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, we're coming up on time and I want to make sure that we are respectful because I know you have lots of other commitments to get to. Um, do you have any other thoughts or anything else that you want to add to this conversation um, before we kind of wrap this up to a close? Well, I mean, the thing that I would like to say is I would, I would like to encourage the readers to persevere through this um, tough literature on the Trinity. Um, I'm, your readers are, probably the more bookish type, you know, um, but there might be some readers who who are initially put off by the difficulty of Trinitarian doctrine. Yeah. I, I'm reminded of, uh, of Augustine's, Augustine's um, uh, quip here where he said, look, if, if this is hard for you, if this is hard to understand, um, then start praying more and fasting more. Um, and I don't think he's just saying that in jest. I really think that he understands that the doctrine of the Trinity, it really is a spiritual exercise. Yeah. Um, and it's not the kind of, it's not the kind of knowledge that simply takes place by mastering a set of concepts and arguments by learning a technique. I really do believe it's a, it's a spiritual kind of knowledge an experiential kind of knowledge. Just like, you know, again, we use the, the wine tasting. It's a tasting in other words, it's, it's not discursive knowledge. It's not objectifying knowledge. Uh, but we know God through God's self. The reason, the reason we can tell the Father and the Spirit and the Son apart from one another is because God has given himself to us, and it's because it's through the Spirit that we can discern these things. I mean, you know, the, the, the Nazarenes uh, were with Jesus, and they, they looked at what he was doing. They didn't realize what was happening in front of their very eyes yeah. because their eyes were not opened by the spirit. So I really do think that it's, it, it, this becomes a spiritual exercise. And I'm not saying I have any better understanding of this because I'm a, you know, higher person spiritually. Right. But I, I really do think that this kind of exercise, even though it's, it, it sounds scholastic, I, I really do think it's deeply spiritual. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that would be my encouragement, you know, that, you know, you, you sort of you read these books and, and then you pray you know, and you get to your knees before and after. And, and, and I think that's, you know, and, you know, I mentioned conviction at the start of the interview. Um, Thomas Merton has this phrase conviction born out of sanctity. Yeah. This is really compelling to me. I mean, in other words, you know, this is not the cocky, the cocky conviction of the academic or, or, or the, uh, um, the one who just likes controversies. You know, this is the conviction that's born from that relationship with God. Yeah. And, you know, if we can model that, then it's only through God's grace that we can. 
Yeah, I think that's great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I do want to point uh, the listeners to an article that you had published on the Gospel Coalition's website. Uh, It's dated May 3rd, and it's titled How the Doctrine of Inseparable Operations Unlocks the Gospel. Um, We didn't touch on it today on the interview, but you gave a a similar presentation at this little mini ETS region conference that, that we hosted a little while ago. And I think this you know, there's, there's theological thinkers that do this because it's fun and because it's important, it's important, but they do it because they're interested in it. And then there's theological thinkers that do theology because it's important for the mission of the church in the world, right? For what God wants to accomplish through the church, we have to understand him. We have to understand the gospel. So this article uh, is important because it will connect to those kinds of thinkers. It'll connect why it is that this seemingly esoteric kind of obscure doctrine that frankly, like most people probably have never heard of and never thought of why it is so central to our gospel proclamation. So I'm going to point the listeners to read that. And, you know, I'm just so appreciative of this book. I'm so appreciative of this resurgence that we're all kind of experiencing of theology proper and Trinitarian theology. And I think we've moved into this new phase. Um, you you kind of comment in the, one of the opening chapters of your book that this resurgence of, of Trinitarian theology in some ways has actually pushed against the doctrine of inseparable operations and the way it's developed. So I'm glad that we're moving on to another phase of this Trinitarian resurgence or, or retrieval, whatever we want to call it, where we're actually pressing into the original theology of the patristic era and how, how these um, seemingly metaphysical esoteric topics actually were so bedrock foundational. I'm just really appreciative of the, the approach that this book has. So everyone, check out this book. Um, if you've got Logos, you can buy it on Logos. You can set up one of those awesome reading plans that Jesse and I have been talking about so much. Again, you can get that uh, discount on Logos Bible Software by going to logos.com slash reformbrotherhood. And this has just been such a treat. I can't wait until you write the next book, which uh, I think should be on the doctrine of appropriation, since I've never seen a book length treatment of that either. Um, I don't know if you've run into one, but uh, that's another one that I think that's really the next step in a lot of this theology and a lot of this Trinitarian resurgence is now applying that into our actual reflection and how the Bible talks about the Trinity in a more direct way. Um, so I, I've just appreciated your time. I've appreciated your friendship and your mentorship and, and your, uh, your act as teaching me. Hopefully, uh, hopefully I'm uh, carrying the torch well. And, uh, you know, Adonis, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.